What a beautiful day. It's already been said, but I'll, I'll say it again. Week 16 together here uh, outside. We're glad that you're here this weekend, whether you've been here with us before or whether this is your first time. We're so grateful you are here and those that are joining us uh, digitally this morning. Uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, uh, chapter 17 is our passage, and I'll begin reading. I hope you have your Bibles and follow along, beginning in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the widow, word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, <clears throat> Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and, and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. A few weeks ago, I, I preached from the first verse of this chapter, and I reminded you how the nation of Israel had uh, one, uh, they were one nation, and while they were one, they had three kings. Uh, Saul was the first king, and then David and then his son Solomon. And then Solomon had a son that if Solomon was wise, he was at the opposite end of the spectrum. He was foolish, and his name, Rehoboam. And he foolishly kicks off his administration by imposing not just a little tax increase, but a severe tax increase. And the people revolt, and this ends up splitting the country of Israel into two nations, north and south, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And then over the next several hundred years, they each, the north and south, each have separate kings. There are 19 kings uh, in the north, there are 20 in the south. 
And when you read through the descriptions of these kings, they were some of the sorriest people that have ever lived. Some of those in the north included idolaters, murderers, drunkards, and more. But the worst was Ahab. It says in uh, chapter 16, verse 33, Ahab did no more, more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so by himself, Ahab was bad news. But he was only made more so by his wife, Jezebel. If you were here, I told you about, uh, just summarize what it had said in the previous chapter, that, that Ahab, being an Israelite, was married to Jezebel, who was a Phoenician. Phoenicia was a country to the north of Israel, to the northwest of Israel, on the coast. <clears throat> and they were pagans. They were Baal worshipers. But this was a diplomatic marriage. And so when a Jezebel arrived in Israel, she was not content to practice her religion quietly at home. She sought to remove the worship of Jehovah from Israel and to substitute the worship of this foreign god. She included in her entourage when she showed up some 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah that was a queen mother of all the gods. And so this, as you can imagine, just raised religious tensions within the northern kingdom of Israel to this incredibly high level between those who promoted the worship of Baal and those who adhered to Yahweh worship. And Jezebel was the main leader behind this. And her husband Ahab at least acquiesced to it, if did not fully support it. So here we are in about the ninth century BC, and, and Elijah appears on the scene. We're not told really nothing about him except where he's from. But we do know his name means the Lord Jehovah is my God. And he serves the Lord in a day when it was not popular dark times so here's the pronouncement as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall be neither rain nor dew these years except by my word well why did why did Elijah talk to Ahab about the weather couldn't he pick some other area if God was going to discipline or even punish his people well you see you have to understand Baal was a god of the weather he was a storm god and Baal worshipers believed that he controlled the rains. <clears throat> so Elijah was challenging their God's ability to make thunder and rain. Warren Wearsby, years ago, he, he put it this way, the Jewish people depended on the seasonal rains for the success of their crops. If the Lord didn't send the early rain in October and November and the latter rain in March and April, there would soon be a famine in the land. It is likely Elijah appeared before King Ahab in October, about the time the early rain should have begun. And there had been no rain for six months, from April to October. And the prophet announced that there would be no rain for an indefinite period of time. The people were following Baal, not Jehovah, and the Lord could not send the promised rain and still be faithful to his covenant. So an extended drought an extended drought like they would see there, announced and controlled by the prophet of Jehovah, Elijah that is, would make it clear to everyone that Baal, the storm god, was not a true god at all. 
Now, right after this announcement, God removes his messenger. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, go, leave, and he's to cross over the Jordan River to the east side of it, to this, this ravine, this Kareth ravine where there was a brook. And before we go any further, you might ask, well, why would God remove his messenger? Wouldn't he want to leave him right there so that he could be a reminder, preaching to the people or proclaiming to the king, see, see, see what I told you? Repent. And yet he removes him. And so we could ask, well, why did he do that? Well, we could say, well, it was probably for protection from Jezebel. We know that she kills all these priests of God. She could easily have Elijah killed. We might guess that it's developed his character. We know how God did that with some of his servants like Joseph in the Old Testament, some 13 years from the time he goes there before he becomes influential in Pharaoh's court. We think about Moses in the backside of the desert as God prepared him for what he was about to do. So maybe we could say, well, God was going to build Elijah's character. But that, as we look closely, that's really not it. The reason God removed Elijah was judgment on Israel. It was judgment on Israel. Elijah's role, like any prophet, was to bring the word of the Lord. He was the bearer of God's word, what God had said. And so the removal of Elijah to another place spells the absence of the word of God from the nation of Israel. It was essential to their spiritual lives. We know it was refreshing, and only the Lord could give it. And so Psalm 74 says, The silence of God's servant was a judgment from the Lord. God's word was like rain from heaven. But let's see how God provides for Elijah. It's interesting, we go from the, the, court, the court of Ahab, now we go to this brook where Elijah is by himself except for these birds. The drought is getting worse. Elijah receives special care. God tells him that the ravens will sustain him by bringing bread and by bringing meat. And so it's been said that the will of God never leads us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. And so he takes him to this desolate place, and yet he cares for him there. God seemed to be setting him aside. You know how long he is at the Kareth area in that brook? A year a whole year. You ever feel God sets you aside? We're not told what Elijah was thinking. We don't know. So I'll be careful not to speculate. But if it was me, I'd probably think, what is God doing? I, I'm not serving any purpose. Uh, you feel that way sometimes as a student. You may feel that way as a caretaker. As, you, as you're caring for uh, an elderly relative or a, a disabled child or an infant and you're, no one sees all that you do and you're by yourself with that other person. You may think, what is God doing? I'm just here removed. I thought all the important things are out in public with, with evangelism and, and teaching and all that. And yet God has Elijah right where he wants him. And God's got some of you right where he wants you. And it's very removed from other people right now. So that was certainly Elijah's experience. Well, after a year, God tells him to leave in verse 8. And probably the instructions surprised him like they would us. Because God tells him now to travel, if you have the Jordan River, 
You have the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And the Cherith Ravine is over here. He tells him to go way up north, way up north to Phoenicia, to the city of Zarephath, which is a suburb of Sidon. Guess what? Guess who's from that area? Guess whose hometown that is? You ever drive through a town and you'll see a sign right on the, the border where it says home of so-and-so, maybe a famous person, or they were famous at one time, now you don't know who they are? Guess whose home that was? Jezebel. He's moving Elijah right up to the middle of heathen land. And he's telling him to go there, which he does. He's moving him to the very middle of the idol worshipers, of the Baal worshipers. And so God is not only at work in a large scale, we can, we can estimate with, in a conservative estimate that the people affected by this drought on the eastern side of the Mediterranean would have numbered in the millions of people, millions of people that were being affected. And what does God do? He zeroes in on one woman who's not even named, a widow, and he tells Elijah that he is to go there and that God has this widow that's going to care for him. The point is God often brings us help through channels we would never expect. Here's this Gentile widow, and she's experiencing the mercy of God. It's a glimpse of what God will do for the nations. That as Psalm 67 says, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. So what's he doing? He's taking Elijah, and he's taking him right into the household of this woman who has never been exposed to the worship of Yahweh. Now, Zarephath and what happens there is not good news. You may know from Luke chapter 4 that, that Jesus, when he goes back to his, his hometown, his homeland, you might say, of Nazareth, that he goes to the synagogue, and on a Sabbath he reads from Isaiah. And here's what it says in Luke 4, quoting, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And then it says in verse 28 in Luke, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, it says, they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, why in the world would this reference to this story in the Old Testament provoke such rage? They want him dead because of what he says about Elijah and this widow and a few other people because they understood the point. There were plenty of widows in Israel qualifying as valid home mission projects. And Elijah could have ministered to them, but God directed Elijah to none of them. Instead, he bypasses them and he sends them to help a suffering widow in Phoenicia among the Gentiles. He's saying that Yahweh was bypassing Israel. And by showing his favor to this Gentile, he's removing it from Israel 
And Elijah's journey to Zarephath was an act of judgment upon Israel. And so the folks in Nazareth quickly connected the dots, as what Jesus was saying, that God's grace was extended through Elijah to these foreigners because Israel had ignored it. Now, my personal word to you, and it's true not only, I think, for God's people in Israel then, it's true for us individually and as a church. If you go on despising God's word, if you despise it in the sense of ignore it, then God may withdraw his light and allow you to walk in the darkness you prefer. It is a terrible, terrible thing when God basically says, okay, that's what you want, go your own way. Like the father to the prodigal son. Here, here's your share of the inheritance, go. You're going to get what you think you want, and you're going to find out it's not what you want. That's why James encourages, come near to God, he will come near to you. We have continually to draw near to God, especially when God prods us. Some of you have experienced this this past week. God comes to mind in a, in a powerful way, maybe not massively powerful, but you, you're inclined to draw near to him. That's the time to move. That's the time to move toward God and not to ignore that. Well, finally, I'll summarize the challenge that goes out of God's demand of this widow and how this widow, this Gentile widow, how she walks by faith. She's impoverished. Elijah meets her, and he, he asks for some water. Then he asks for a meal. And she assures Elijah she has no food. I mean, she's got a tiny, a tiny bit there that will be the last that they have, and then basically they're going to start death. And so she's hopeless. She's at the end of her resources. So she has a little bit of oil in a flask. She has a little bit of barley in this large barrel and a few sticks for wood. And Elijah seems heartless, you might think, in asking for some. Yeah, she says how little I have. He says, well, that's what I want you to use. And then he softens his demand in verse 13. And he says, do not fear. Do not fear. You know, she said we're going to die. This is the last we have. But the key part is in verse 14. When he says, don't be afraid, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's the basis for the obedience. Here's the basis he's wanting her to realize as she prepares this food for him. God, God's word is coming telling you to do this. And God will provide. Do not be afraid. It's the reason to gamble everything. Because God is with her. What a great example of genuine faith taking God at his word, his clear word, risking it all, wagering it all upon the faithfulness of God. And the miracle we find out is not just a one-time miracle. This is rather unusual in the entire Bible. This is a continuous miracle. It's not something that happened once, like the healing of a person or the raising of a, a dead person in the New Testament. This is continuous. She goes, and there's sufficient food for the day. Or she goes in the morning, it's there. She goes in the evening, it's there. She goes in the morning, it's there. And she goes, she goes to the cupboard, so to speak. And there was enough food for the day. And it goes on for weeks. Every morning was a fresh episode of the fullness of God, faithfulness of God to his people. 
most of us can learn a lot from this Phoenician widow, this woman who didn't know one one-hundredth of how much we know about God and about God's word. We'll know more Bible and theology than she ever knew in her whole life. But at the end of the day, faith consists of leaning, leaning all of our weight upon the word of God. Last thought, as I mentioned before, we can look at uh, macro things, what God may or may not be doing in the world through all of this. And I guess in a few years we'll be able to look back with some perspective and we'll read about places that are seeing a mighty move of God. We continue to read about Iran, where more than a million people have become Christians in recent years, uh, and what is happening there. Uh, but we'll look back probably and see what God was doing on a macro level that we, we can't see here. Just like what he was doing in Elijah's day as this, as this drought got worse and worse and worse week by week. But at the same time, he was concerned about one woman and her son. That you may feel removed, you may see yourself as uh, not a world changer, and yet God cares about you and knows the very details of what you're facing right now, whatever it may be. And he invites you and urges you and me, just like this widow, to act by faith because God has said it, and he is faithful. Do you recognize God's provision also day after day? Most of us won't see the, uh, I'm careful with the term miraculous, but we won't see mighty works of God on a daily basis. But every day's provision is an act of God. Breakfast today, dinner this evening, life, sustenance, those are all the mercy of God being displayed. His provisions rarely come in huge amounts at one time, but in daily portions. Let's pray together. Father, each day you give us sufficient grace through faith in Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you for the gospel, that we were lost, but you have demonstrated your own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we praise you on this your day, uh, a day where you ceased from your creation and you looked at what you had created and you said it was good, you rested. Today as we rest, Father, from our normal labors, pray that we would draw near to you, that you would use the means of grace here as we worship and your word and fellowship uh, to cause us to draw near to you. And if there would be any among us here that, that may see themselves, uh, that, you, that you have taken your hand off their life, perhaps they have strayed from you slowly but for a long time, and we ask today that they would draw near to you with the assurance that you will draw near to them. Uh, thank you, Father, that you have desire to draw to yourself people from every nation, kindred, and tribe. And we are evidence of that, that you are building your family from all people. We pray that that will continue, and we hasten the day, and so before Christ comes again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.